Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 11th, 2013, and this is episode 1086 of the Survival Podcast. Um, today is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails. You send it to jack at the Survival Podcast. Dot com Again, the email address is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You put question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, story for Jack, question for Jack, whatever it is in the subject line. You send it to me, and I go through it and about a billion other emails a week, and uh, some of them get on the air. That's pretty much how it works. If you follow the format, if you actually use my email address instead of trying to do it on Facebook or something like that, if you use the format of something for Jack, so one word followed by the words for Jack in the subject line, I'm probably at least going to skim it, and it's at least going to get screened. If you don't do that, well, I do my best, and we see what happens. But uh, I'm telling you, this is the best way to get it done. Uh, before we get to your feedback, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, ready-made resources. You know, there's not more, much more you can ask for from a company than for their name to be what they do and then to have them do it consistently every time over and over again. That's what ready-made resources is. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy, shipped to you with lightning-fast customer service and great pricing. And I mean all of the resources. Solar and wind, check. Tactical, check. Practical, check. You got it? I'm talking long-term food storage, check. Stuff to do your own long-term food storage with, the supplies to put away, bulk items, check. Uh, you need ammo. They sell that, too. Uh, you need tactical weaponry. They have that. You need good gear. They've got that. They've got it all. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical gives you all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Now, you might wonder, why are they called Sawtooth Tactical? That's because they are in the uh, Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. That's where the company is actually located. And they're veteran-owned and veteran-operated, so you know you're going to get great service every time. Uh, check them out. Again, I mean, I'm talking everything. Magpul magazines, I'm sure they're working on getting them back in stock because, well, we all know what's going on there. Uh, Maxpedition bags, they've got just about everything you can think of. Chest rigs, first aid medical kits, uh, food, uh, ammunition, they've got it all. Check them out today. Uh, especially if you're needing parts for your AKs or ARs, that's something that they really specialize in. Again, sawtac.com. Next up, I, uh, I want to remind you guys about 13skills.com. Uh, Dorothy's doing a, a good job over there, kind of being the, uh, the head website mistress. Uh, she's been asking people to send in, like, blog posts or Flickr, um, slideshows or videos or a forum thread or anything on a project they're working on for 13 Skills. Let me tell you the best way to get featured on the 13 Skills blog and get Dorothy to do that for you. Don't just send me your blog. Don't just say, I have a blog, and it's at joesblog.com, and I post about 13 Skills there. Send us a post that's specific to something you're working on or a project you did or something like that. Or send us a Flickr slideshow of something that you you know built, a project you built, that you took pictures of from end to end. Or send us a specific YouTube video that says, hey, I've been working on this and this is what we did. Uh, that's how to get featured on the 13 Skills blog. The folks that have been featured, we've heard back, it's brought them quite a bit of traffic. So if you're a new blogger and you're trying to get some traffic and subscribers to your blog, this is a great way to get some exposure. The way you submit this is uh, just send an email to skillgirl at 13skills.com 
with your link to where you're featured and make sure that you are signed up as a 13skills.com member and make sure you include your member name at 13skills so she can also link to your profile so that you can pick up followers there because we are working on version uh, 1.1 of the 13skills site. It's going to be really cool and uh, it's going to make connecting with each other a lot easier to do but there's no reason not to form those connections now. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service. I do offer you a service discount. Please email me before, not after you join, with service discount in the subject line. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com, as always, is the email address. And tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did, and I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. All right, lead story today. I want to kind of start out with uh, the Walking to Freedom initiative uh, that we are we are working on and trying to help people that are in, let's just say, the worst of the worst states. Just pick a better home. I mean, why should you stay in a place that overtaxes you and oppresses your rights and is a, a bastion of socialistic you know, ruin, basically? There's a few states out there that are basically just... I, I mean, they're on the, they're on the precipice of bankruptcy at any given time because they've managed the money of their citizenry so poorly. Additionally, they're the states that are the most regulation, regulate, regulatory states out there. They're the ones that have the greatest amount of a boot on the throats of their citizens. And, you know, we can debate who's the worst of the worst, but when it comes down to it, it seems that there's this group of usual suspects that seems to always make the list. So what we're doing is a completely democratic 90-day process at the beginning of the project. And that is that people can go to the Walking to Freedom forum, which is at walkingtofreedom.com. They can set up an account, and once you have your account activated, you can log in. You can post to meet other people. But the real interaction on this forum is going to be in 90 days. Once the naughty list is established and everybody else has a board, every other state's going to have a board, and basically you can form your own teams of ambassadors, make your case for why your state is a place for people to come to, or, you know, or maybe even the people that aren't on the naughty list maybe want to know about states that maybe are a little bit better. This is a, this is a jump ball. This is not the Free State Project. I have a couple of people emailing me. Well, you got this new Free State No, the Free State Project's in New Hampshire. They're they're the only true Free State Project in that you know vein. That that is the Free State Project. This is something totally different. But I, I've talked to those folks up there and I've said that you should love what I'm doing because what I'm doing is basically generating leads. And then it's up to you to close the leads. I mean, looking at this as a marketer, uh, I want as many people as possible to know, hey, you have a choice in America. This is a republic. You don't have to live with the crap that a state like, let's say, New Jersey continuously throws onto its citizens. Freedom might be just across the border as long as you don't go, well, New Jersey, you're about the only place you got to go is Pennsylvania from Jersey, and where it doesn't, it's not as bad or worse. And, uh, being from Pennsylvania, it pains me to say this. It's probably not where I would go, but I'd go there before Jersey, and that's the whole point. Um, now, I want to give you a couple updates on what's going on, and then we'll get into your feedback. Number one, I want to give you kind of the leaders list. Who Who is showing up high on the naughty list? So I'm going to give you anybody polling, let's say, above 7% of the votes. And remember, we're using disapproval voting. That means once you have your account, You can log in and you can vote on the poll, establishing the naughty list, and you can vote for up to 10 states that you think are the worst. And then we're going to have this conglomeration, this, this consensus 
uh, of the five, seven-ish worst states, depending on how the votes work out, that'll be the naughty list. That's the target to get people to leave. Um, but I don't think anybody will be surprised by the voting so far. California, 12.5%. Um, let's see, 7% Hawaii. I'm going to do anybody over 7%. 11% Illinois. Um, 10% Massachusetts. 10% New Jersey. 12% New York. And that's it. That's the people that are at 7% or higher. Gee, what a surprise. Um, in fact, what's interesting is, even though people get up to 10 votes, almost nobody else is polling over 1%. Let me give you the people polling higher than 3%. Colorado at 3.6%. Oh, Connecticut's at 7.2%. I guess I missed them the first time. Um, Delaware's at 1.7%. That's pretty low. Um, let's see, who is that? I can't see. Yeah, Hawaii at 7.2, which I think I already said. 6.4, Maryland. Uh, honorable mention list, I guess. Uh, 2.2% for Michigan. Uh, everybody else is under 1%. 1.4%. Ah, oh, my old friends, Pennsylvania. And 3.1% Rhode Island. Uh, and then 3.8% Washington, D.C., which I think we're wasting our time with D.C. People that live there live there for a reason. Washington State, 1.8%. So it's very clear that if we look for people to get into the double digits, I mean, we're right back to, you know, the usual suspects. California, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York. I don't think anybody's surprised by that. But, hey, this is a democratic process. This is going to last a total of 90 days. Voting closes May 27th. Please get over to walkingtofreedom.com. Sign up for a form account. A note on that. I'm being, I'm not doing as good a job as I should of approving people. This form was only up for a couple days. We had over 300 members in a couple days. When a form gets hot fast, the spammers are right behind it. People selling Viagra, posting links to... Filthy porn and stuff like that. So I changed the registration where I have to manually approve you. I should be doing that once a day. If you are waiting more than a day and haven't been approved, email me and just put walking to freedom in the subject line and tell me, hey, go, just don't even tell me who you are. It doesn't matter. Just say, go approve the members and I'll just go approve everybody. As of 10 a.m. this morning, everybody that's waiting should be approved. You should get an email telling you that. If you don't, whatever you suggested for a username and password, go try to log in. You should be able to log in. There's nobody pending approval right now, uh, and, and that should uh, get everybody onto the boards. Let's get your votes in. Let's get them counted, and let's be part of this initiative. Again, you don't have to be a mover to be part. That's why I love this. You don't have to go anywhere to be part of this. All you have to do is let your voice be heard to who you think is oppressing its citizens the worst, and if you think you're in a good place, Help people from there choose where you're at. You know, and people, I've been asked already, well, don't you think this is like, kind of divides it up and it's not, you know, it'd be more powerful if we only had like three or four states or just one like Free State wants to do? And the answer is no, I don't. No, I don't. And this is why. The five worst states have a combined population of 80 million people. 80 million people. Um, if we were to take and say that 20 states kind of are like the, the primo, and we were to pull 2% of 80 million, 
okay, across 20 states evenly divided. If every so equal that everybody got an equal share, the 20 best states got an equal share. That would still be 80,000 productive new citizens to all the states. Free State Project's goal is just 20,000 to just New Hampshire. So now you got to think about this is I'm taking this to a marketer's level. Uh, instead of being this really narrow window for people, I'm making it something because a lot of people hear about Free State Project in New Hampshire. Go, that's great. You know what? I I live in California. And I I want to get the hell out of here, but I'm not going there. I, I live in California because it's warm and sunny. And, and this is the truth about a republic. None of the states are perfect. There's things in Texas I'd love to change, okay? But it's better than a lot of other places. It's like buying a car. You can buy the Ferrari, you can buy the Mercedes, you can buy the Ford F-350, and each thing has something that's more appealing to the individual. And all I'm saying is, let's let people aware that there are, make them aware that there are buying choices. America, this is not, this is not communism. It's not like where you get one model, every state's the same. They're different. They're supposed to be. Let's simply make people aware of it. And as hard as moving can seem, let's make them aware of this fact. It's easier to rent a truck, make some new friends, than it is to live in oppression. Let's just make people aware of that. I think it's a much bigger movement that way. Let's go on and take your first email. Oh, by the way, the uh, real quick, the, the, the Members Forum, the Walking to Freedom Members Forum, has now officially, as of this morning, 378 members. Not bad for a couple weeks. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, take that first email. This is an interesting one. comes to me from, I'm going to call him Tom, because that's the best I can do out of his email address, and it doesn't really get signed. But it says, hey, Jack, short article for you. And it's on Zero Hedge, and it says follow-up question: If we're balancing everyone else's books, do we can afford to do it? We can't afford to do it anymore. Can the European countries really be pissed at us when it all blows up? I mean, what else can be done except everyone agree that we're all screwed and change the system? I know it's not good for anyone, but it's the plan, right? And then there's a four-letter word that begins with F when he thinks about what all of this means. Okay, and I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Anyway, the the title of the article on Zero Hedge is. Fed injects a record 100 billion cash into, I think it's 85 billion dollars a month they're doing in, uh, this QE jack, 100 billion, that's chump change, into foreign banks operating in the U.S. in the past week. There you go. Foreign banks. Okay, let's, let me read a little bit of this article to you, and then I'll tell you what they're not saying, what they're not getting, uh, the important part to understand the other side of this. Those who have been following our exclusive series of the Fed's direct bailout of European banks here, 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 and here, and indirectly Europe will not be surprised at all to learn that in the week ended February 27th, uh, or the week in which Europe went into, uh, however brief tailspin following a shocking defeat, of Bersini in the Italian elections, and an even more shocking victory by Berlusconi and Grillo, leading to a political vacuum and a hung parliament, the Fed injected a record $99 billion of excess reserves into foreign banks. As of the most recent H8 statement, it makes it very clear, soared from $836 billion to a record $936 billion, or $99.3 billion reserve reallocation in the form of cash, very, very fungible cash, into foreign read European banks in one week. Um, now, I want you to, they almost gloss over the bigger number, $936 billion. That's how much money we've pumped into these European banks through quantitative easing. That That's not all the way back to 2008 when this crap started. That's through these rounds of QE. 
And we know that's the case because 936 billion is, well, almost a trillion, but we know that more than two trillion went out in one round of crap. Uh, during the crisis, thanks to the work of Senator Bernie Sanders out of Vermont, and by the follow-up work that was was driven by his work and Ron Paul's work, we know that there were trillions upon trillions of dollars that went out. So clearly, those trillions aren't in this nine hundred or eight, yeah, nine hundred thirty-six billion dollars. This is all QE crap that, that went to Europe. Um, I, I want to read a little bit more of the article to you, and then I want to kind of tell you what's not being said. Furthermore, as we showed, virtually all the reserves created by the Fed end up allocated as cash at commercial banks operating in the U.S., both domestically chartered, small and large, but more importantly, foreign, and of the $1.884 trillion in very fungible cash parked in various domestic and international U.S. banks, just half of it, or $949 billion, is actually allocated to U.S. banks. The other half, or $936 billion, is parked within, again, very fungible cash accounts of foreign European banks operating in the U.S. So let me explain what they did. They're not sending the money to France, right? They're not sending the money to Athens or Paris. They're, they're giving the money to banks in the U.S., except they're actually foreign-owned banks and not backdoor foreign-owned, but upfront foreign owned like we know certain banks are owned by by a french company or consortium or we know certain banks are owned by an italian consortium right so they're 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 giving money to the european banks now once it's in a european bank it doesn't matter if they have a branch here it's in europe it becomes a european asset all right they're just a little like satellite branch here so let's look at it this way um If Nations Bank, I guess they're not in business anymore, so it's probably a good one to use so nobody gets pissed. Let's say Nations Bank still existed. And let's say they were headquartered in, in you know, I think Houston, Texas is where they were. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just say they were headquartered in Houston, Texas. Now, if Nations Bank gets a huge windfall of money, it's good for Texas. And it's not necessarily good for Georgia just because Nations Bank has some offices or banks in Georgia. They're not a Georgia bank. They're a Texas bank. All right, so think of it that on an international scale where the borders are even more defined, right? Because this is in the European Union. Now, if you keep reading the rest of this article, they basically state that the European banks are now probably take because this is cash. This isn't this isn't this isn't a loan. This is cash. This is this is the mortgage-backed security exchanges. This is buying, and that doesn't say that here, but I'm. I know that's what this is because that's where all the money's coming from right now. And to really get this, we got to kind of under, I don't think most people understand what a mortgage backed security is. Um, people tell me when I say, well, basically the Fed is buying the mortgage on your house. No, they're not. They're buying a security backed by mortgages on your house. They don't really own the, the, the mortgage, but see, they really kind of do. Because the way a, a mortgage-backed security works is there's companies that basically are mortgage-backed security companies. It's what they do for a living. They manufacture them. So you end up buying a house, and that house then gets sold, and it could get sold to a bunch of different places. It could get sold to, to another bank. It could get sold to a company that manufactures MBSs, which mortgage-backed securities. It could get sold anywhere. But eventually, it can get sold, resold or resold until sooner or later, that mortgage actually ends up in the hands of an MBS, even if you don't know it, even if you still think you're paying, let's say, Wells Fargo. It really may not be Wells Fargo that actually owns your mortgage. They're just administering it for a fee. Your mortgage has now been securitized into a financial vehicle that is sold on the open market. 
The person holding that mortgage-backed security, or more like the institution, because we're talking billions, trillions of dollars here, um, really owns you and owns your mortgage. They're not holding the deed, but they really hold the control of your mortgage. Okay? Because it's a lot like if you buy a mutual fund and there's Ford stock in there, you're a Ford stockholder within that fund. You can take how much money you're in there and divide it up and you can figure out how many shares of Ford stock represent your holdings. And you're holding that stock. It's not much different than if you went out and bought Ford stock directly. It's a little different, but not really. There's some voting issues there, but you still are holding the stock. You're still a stockholder, a shareholder. That's how these MBSs work. Now, so why is so much money going to European banks? Because when you look at it, you say, well, it's just the Fed giving the Europeans money. No, it's the Fed. And this is what's not in this article on Zero Heads. It's what they've missed, buying the MBSs from the banks that hold them. Because the banks can also hold the MBS. You see, they, they, they leverage the money a thousand times over. So who put tons of money into the U.S. mortgage market? Who's holding tons still of mortgage-backed securities to this day? European banks. So the money's being funneled into the European banks as the Fed continues to buy up the mortgages that they're holding through these investment vehicles called a mortgage-backed security. That's putting cash into these. So now the bank has cash. Understand that. This is not like where the Fed comes out and reduces the interest rate down to, you know, a quarter of a percent and then loans a trillion dollars at a quarter of a percent. The banks can take that money and do all kinds of crap with it, but technically they still owe a trillion dollars back. No, this is fungible cash. That's what they got right in the Zero Hedge article. It's, it's and fungible means you can do whatever the hell you want to with it. If I give you fungible assets, they're yours. You have complete control. You don't owe me shit back. That's what's going on here. Now, the European banks, this is what they get right in the Zero Hedge article. They, they got nothing wrong. I mean, they're dead on. They just didn't bring the point I gave you up, which is important in connecting the dots. Is now these banks can do things like buy their own bonds from their own countries or buy other bonds from countries. The Italians can buy a bunch of Spanish bonds. The Italians can buy a bunch of Italian bonds with this money that they really didn't do shit to get. Because all they did was dump an asset that nobody wanted. So they get a toxic asset off their books. They get cash. They convert it to a bond, which is immediately marketable and paying a decent interest rate to themselves now. And then they make this, the, the economies of Italy and Spain, which are the two that, you know, in addition to Greece, seem like they're going to go careening over the edge, look stable. That stabilizes the entire Eurozone, and that makes the phony economy continue. That's part of the dog and pony show that's going on right now. And the Germans, who usually flip out, mine, you know, don't do it, no monetizing the debt. They get upset when it happens through the European Central Bank. But when the U.S. puts the money into the banks and fungible assets and it's monetized that way, since it's backdoor, the Germans are nice and quiet about the whole thing. So everybody gets what they want. And once again, the American people get the shaft because that's your money going to Europe. But there's a reason it's going to Europe, because Europe bought your mortgage when they thought it was a good investment, and they found out it was a crappy investment. But remember this, about a lot of the mortgages that are being purchased right now, most of the crappiest of the crappy were already done away with in 2008 and 2009 with initial bailouts and all kinds of other backdoor dealings in the trillions of dollars. The stuff the Fed is getting their hands on right now is not necessarily... Um, toxic. It's just not desirable. It's not where people really want their money right now. 
There's another side to this. This is so important, and this is something people don't get. I keep telling you we're going to see lots of investment, lots of recovery, growth in the natural gas sector. This is creating lots of what? Fungible assets. And it's not just doing it in Europe. It's doing it domestically as well. And it doesn't even matter if it's Europe. Basically, it's creating a glut of cash. And sooner or later, this glut of cash is going to look for a home. And it's not going to want to sit around and collect a quarter point of interest anymore. And it's not going to want to sit in government bonds anymore. And it's going to flow into the market sectors that look like they're the best place for money to be with long-term investor appeal. And I'm going to, tell, I'm going to go out on a limb right now. I'm telling you, within four to five years, you're going to see the Dow Jones Industrial Average approach 20,000. I really believe, and when, the more I look at this crap and everybody goes, it's fake, it's fake. I know it's fake. But I know what fake can do in a midterm cycle. Now, do I think that means that the stock market will be booming tomorrow morning? I don't know where it'll be tomorrow morning or next month or by the end of 2013. 2013 can be a year that's sideways. It can be a year where people get slaughtered. It can be a year where people make a bunch of money. I'm talking about the overall trend over the next four or five years. There's a lot of crap coming down the pike and a lot of money that's just sitting there going, I, I got to do something with this. As the inflation begins to eat away at the money's value, that money will seek a place to offset the inflation. That's the Keynesian investment cycle. It's designed to work that way, and this is the problem with people that see the flaws with the Keynesian cycle. They say that, well, it doesn't work. And, and they leave out the most important component. It doesn't work in the end. In the end, it always ends in misery and disaster. It always ends in suffering and pain. Yes, but that doesn't mean it doesn't look good in the middle. Every party that I ever went to when I was a young, stupid kid and boozed it up was a great party at like 1.30 in the morning. It was the most awesome thing in the world. And to say that you don't have fun when you're doing it is misleading. But God, the morning sucked. This is a five, ten year party. And a hangover is what the problem is. And those that see the hangover happening at 8 o'clock at night when the party hasn't even started yet, they're short-selling an opportunity. That, that's, that's what I see here. Now, I'm not a stock trader. I've, I've talked very little about my personal investments, but people say, where are you right now? This is my prediction, but am I just going to go all in on it? No, no. I hold my, my part of my investments that I hold stocks, dividend-producing companies that do well in an upturn and hold their ground in a downturn to deal with the midterm cycles. There was a point where I almost exited everything. I almost did it. I talked about it a lot last year, and I watched, and I waited, and I watched, and I, I said, no, I'm thinking, no. I'm th and I said, no, forget it. Stay with it. That's what I'm doing. You got to make your own decisions. I'm not a financial advisor, but this is just one more example of why I read the future the way that I do economically. This will be the biggest misery you've ever seen in the world, but there's a hell of a party on the way before it happens. Let's uh, let's go something totally different and get out of the money thing for a while and, and deal with a, a problem, I guess you would say here. Jack, how do I get mice out of my garden? Since I've been listening to you, I've been slowly co converting to no-till gardening. This year is the first year I'll be doing 100% no-till. I have noticed a bad infestation of mice. They're under the cardboard and in all the mulch, old hay and wood chips. I first noticed them when I had a wheelbarrow full of water and decided to dump it on a future garden. Uh, when the water hit the ground, seven mice scurried out. My seven-year-old daughter managed to stomp one. What do you suggest? 
and from Matthew in, uh, in, in Georgia. Um, tell your daughter well done and send her out there with a pair of boots. That might be one thing you can do. Um, I think that we need to look at it from, from a standpoint of, is it really a, a big problem? No one wants mice and rats around, but in, in the end, uh, are they going to be a problem for your garden? And the answer is no. And are they going to be a problem getting in the house? And the answer is, is most likely no. Um, mice are not going to be up eating your tomatoes and things like that, at least not on a regular basis. Um, where I lived in Pennsylvania, and I'm not sure what species of mouse you have here, but where I lived in Pennsylvania, there were literally thousands of whitefoot deer mice all over the place. Um, we had one particular dog that relished them. I mean, it was like his snack. And one day we watched him eat about 18 in a single evening. I sat on the uh, porch with my dad drinking a yingling beer, and we just, just watched the dog just, you know, run from one spot to the other. And, you know, you just see the head go up. And, so a, a rat terrier uh, or something like that might not be a bad idea. A good cat. A good cat will do a good job of cleaning those mice out for you. Uh, we had a problem with, with uh, what are called wood rats. Uh, which are not like the Norwegian house rat, but wood rats, uh, because we were feeding birds was the main thing that seemed to attract them. And, uh, Ralph, uh, kept their population in check. Um, mouse traps with peanut butter, if you really want them gone, uh, peanut butter probably being the best, uh, of the, the baits for mice and rats. Uh, you can trap down their numbers some. That'll work as well. I just wouldn't get too worried about it in general unless you're having problems that they're directly creating like if they start eating all your stuff or trying to get into your house which generally uh, is not a problem in Pennsylvania anyway with the white foot mice the only time we ever had them get into like cellars and stuff was the depth of winter when it was cold as hell and uh, they they just you know you'd see one here or one there and I mean they just really weren't much of an issue. If you had rats, I would be much more concerned. Larger, more of a disease problem, more of a problem in general. Um, so I I think part of it is well what kind of mouse do you got? And if they're little brown mice with white feet, uh, I I would even worry about them. They're I mean, like I said, we had them, basically we had a great big meadow around our garden. They were in there like crazy, and they were never a problem. I am wondering, though, if this is a sign that you have a problem with your gardening. Um, your cardboard should be really, really wet and making ground contact, and there shouldn't be a lot of room under there. It should be muddy in a place that a mouse really doesn't want to be, uh, and there should be a big, thick layer of mulch on top of it. If you have... Um, cardboard laying in a way that it's dry under there and a nice home for a mouse it's probably not what you're really looking for for your garden so getting all of that cardboard well soaked and into good ground contact is probably going to make it an environment that mice aren't really going to want to be in mice don't like wet they like dry and warm and it sounds like you have a nice dry area with some nice cat because why when you dump the water they're like oh crap run away mice do not dig water except a little bit of it for drinking so if you get those beds good and hydrated and make sure that you don't have any big empty pockets under there, you'll probably they'll probably go find another place to be. Um, but I mean, my, your best control is a cat. Um, it's like cat candy. Uh, and I would say a rat terrier uh, type of a dog, something in that neighborhood. Even a little terrier, like uh, like Yorkies. Uh, even I've seen Chihuahuas that are just dynamite on mice. Um, if you can get it to understand, like even a pup, just what it is, like if you can catch one in a jar and let them get a good sniff of it and, and get them excited and 
set it free and then watch it get shredded. Once that dog knows, oh, that's what a mouse is? That's what it smells like? That's, that's the sounds that it makes? You've got a hunter. And that hunter is going to patrol. And any time he finds one, he's going to go nuts on it. There was a little mouse that got into uh, our house in PA, the place we had in between our moves. And it ended up getting somehow into my son's backpack, into one of the, one of the, in his backpack. And we saw it run, it was one of these little white foot things. We saw it run across the floor and the dog Blackie chased it and it seemed like it went by there, but it went somewhere else and we couldn't find it. And the dog was freaking obsessed with the backpack. We took everything out of the backpack and we're like shaking it and showing it to the dog. And he's like, uh-uh, man, in, like the dog, you can tell he's like, he's in there. And eventually we tore it in, you know, like turn it inside out and all, and out comes the mouse. The dog knew. When we couldn't find it, we couldn't see it. We, I mean, the dog knew that, and that dog was camped out, right? And he's, I wouldn't even call Blackie a good mouse killer. He was just like, this one's going. You get yourself a little rat terrier or a good cat, you got mouse under control. Um, but again, I would, I would work on the environment. The fact that they're there tells me the environment is not exactly what you're looking for. For your garden space. This next one comes from Kareem. Kareem says, uh, seems like suburbs are trying to disassociate themselves from the city of Atlanta. Would lead me to believe they see, have seen something in Atlanta the general population might not be aware of. Actually, I think it's things that the general population is probably highly aware of, like, you know, socialism. The bigger the city, the, the, the more we end up with social programs and the more we end up with people trying to fix everybody's problems and the more we end up with Robin Hood taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Uh, but it's done in such a way. This is what, this is what government does when it, when it takes from the rich and gives to the poor. The government does not enrich the poor when they do this. They actually keep the poor poor. If you think about the fact that Most socialist-minded government officials are elected by the poor, and they keep getting elected, and they keep gaining ground in elections. That must mean the number of people that are poor that vote for them are growing, which means what they're doing is not working. Okay, Let me read you, and of course, somebody has to throw racism into this and sue over it, um, but it's, it says, Suburbs secede from Atlanta. As Detroit, beset by violence, debt, and social woes, prepares to undergo historic takeover by the state, Michigan state government, the city of Atlanta could be sliding toward a similar fate. Some are quietly wondering whether Atlanta is in danger of becoming the Detroit of the South. The city has experienced ongoing succession of government scandals, ranging from massing cheating racket to corruption, bribery, school board incompetence, and now the potential loss of accreditation for local DeKalb school, county schools. For, oh, by the way, the cheating, this went on a, year, a couple years ago. There was this school district, this school in the inner city that was like, you know, getting all kinds of awards and look how good their students are doing. And it's the teachers are so awesome. They went into this and they turned it around and the teachers were giving the kids a freaking answers on a standardized test and they got caught. And it was, it unraveled so many things that the entire school system is in danger of losing its accreditation. That means, <laughs> accreditation of a school basically means that it's validated, that it's, it's valid, right? So that when you get a, a diploma from a high school, it's accreditation is what means that diploma will get you, you know, recognized as being a, a graduate of high school. So they're, the whole damn thing's in danger. That's how bad this is. Um, 
Super white majority cities. As a result of unsavory politics in urban Atlanta, northern suburb communities acted to distance themselves. Beginning in 2005, many communities began the process of incorporating into cities. Thus far, Milton, Sandy Springs, Brookhaven, Dunwoody, uh, Chattahoochee Hills, and Johns Creek have done so. These cities, after breaking away politically from urban Atlanta, have become so successful that a libertarian think tank, the Reason Foundation, has featured Sandy Springs as a model of effective government. The Economist has also applauded the northern Atlanta cities for solving the problem of unfunded government pension liability and avoiding the bankruptcy that looms over some urban areas. These new cities may soon be able to create their own school districts, which would free them even further from the issues besetting Atlanta. When incorporation has been, while incorporation has been popular with residents of the new cities, not all of Atlanta is satisfied. The Georgia Legislative Black Caucus filed a lawsuit in 2011 to dissolve the new cities, claiming they were a super white majority and diluting the voting power of minorities. By being their own cities, they're a, they're a majority diluting. The, I mean, it's ridiculous. Actually, it, what white, black, green, whatever, race has nothing to do with this. This is like poor decisions and good decisions. But if what they're looking for is a majority control, and they don't want a super white majority in control of their city, they should be overjoyed that these people are leaving, shouldn't they? Because doesn't that mean that all of these these super white people that are just like suburbanite super I'm Mr. I'm Mr. Plano, Texas. I go to the gym every day and I make mango coated pork chops as my signature dish. That, that that person doesn't that mean that person's out of the voting block in Atlanta? Doesn't that leave them to do whatever they want to with Atlanta? And gee, which which one works better? Why bring race into this at all? Let's let's talk about the system. Let's talk about how it works. Let me read more from the article, though. Um, a key leader in the black community and a driving force in support of a lawsuit who wishes to remain anonymous bemoaned the disturb quote. This is this is this is a guy, a leader in the black community, talking about his own people. I want you to see what this guy thinks. Of, I mean, this just man. If you talk about somebody's a racist, this guy's racist against his himself. A key leader in the black community and driving force in support of the lawsuit who wishes to remain anonymous bemoaned quote. The disturbing tenis, tendency of black electorates to not elect the smartest and brightest or, quote, even the cleverest, end quote. What? What? What he's saying is, by these people leaving, my people are going to make stupid decisions without them to offset our own poor decisions. I mean, that's about as... If I said that, I mean, their Jesse Jackson would be parachuting into my backyard. I, no wonder he wants to remain anonymous, okay? Nonetheless, he believes there's a social contract between the northern and southern parts of the county. Quote, so when you allow powerful groups of citizens to opt out of a social contract and form their own, it may benefit the group opting out, but it hurts the larger collective. You can read the rest if you want to. This is socialism. This is how socialism works. They tell you it's the best thing for you. They tell you it's the best system, that everybody should do it, and it's great. And then when people leave and do better, they say, oh, you're breaking the social contract. And then they try to use, they, they try to use a lawsuit, which failed, uh, to, to make these cities come back. Let me tell you, Atlanta's not, not the last place you're going to see this. You're going to see more and more of this. I, I'm going to tell you that the first thing you'll notice is that 
let's say metroplexes, places with lots of, like a big city or two and some suburbs around them um, that have lots of suburbs, lots of differences from one suburb to the next, lots of vibrancy from one suburb, suburb to the next, are metroplexes that seem to do pretty well overall. Even if the big city has its own problems, that big city can only have so many problems before it has to correct them because if it doesn't, You know, we talk about voting with your feet by moving from, like, New York to, like, I don't know, Texas, right? That's a little bit more difficult than moving, let's say, if you were in Dallas, moving to, like, Louisville, right? Or moving from Dallas to, like, Grand Prairie or moving from, like, Dallas to Arlington or moving from Grand Prairie to Arlington or moving from Arlington to Mansfield. You know, that's, this is my geography and I know. But it, what I'm talking about are moves that are 10-mile moves, 15-mile moves. Change school district, change your town council, change your mayor, change who you're paying taxes to with a 10-mile move. The big cities that are so big that that's almost impossible are the ones falling in on themselves. The more you bifurcate and trifurcate and keep going and make these little small pockets with self-government within them, the, the better the whole, the whole collective, as this guy says, seems to do. Because it's, it's almost like, it's crazy, but it's almost like a guy that lives 20 miles away from the, 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 the center of a place like Atlanta knows better how to manage his life and what his neighbors want from their lives than a person that lives in downtown Atlanta. It's almost like those two people live in different places with different goals and agendas and different reasons for why they chose to live where that they live. And it's almost like they both would be better off if they stayed out of each other's bit. It's crazy. But see, socialism doesn't work that way. Because what the guy is really saying is all the people that work really hard and produce and are successful in life to make our little socialist utopia work where everybody wins, we need them to participate whether they want to or not. And it's the force of a gun. People ask, how are you, why are you a libertarian? It's the only moral choice I can make is to be a libertarian. Because I don't think it's right for me to use a gun to force you to participate in what I consider my experiment. Because it doesn't stop at the county border. It doesn't stop at the state. It follows you everywhere. But at least when you have these abilities to do these things, there's some level of autonomy where people can say, you know, we're going to run things our own way. And let me give a little lesson. To both the, the, I think the guy that wrote this article is probably a, a good guy. I don't think there's anything he's uh, got any kind of weird political axe to grind, but I don't think he points this out. I think it's important because he uses the word secede. So it's, you know, these, these new cities are seceding from Atlanta. They're not seceding. And this guy that's opposed to it and all the people that are opposed to it and the social contract and everything, the incorporation of cities is a system that's in place that's not secession, it's growth. It, it's designed to work that way. It is designed to work so that a town or a, a city or, or whatever it is can basically incubate as part of the county, maybe an unincorporated area, and technically attached to a larger city for a while, and grow and develop. And then it gets to a point where it says, we can provide our own police, we can provide our own fire department, We can provide our own schools. We can run our own government. We don't need your resources anymore. We can provide for ourselves. So since we don't need your resources, we're not going to take them anymore. And that works really good, 
Except when that little city is really, really successful, this, this, the, the, the big city knows. Well, yeah, you're taking our resources, but we're getting a hell of a lot more out of this than you are. You're paying, you're overpaying for what you get from us. You're funding the other side of town, and we don't want you to go. And that's why they want you to stay, because because they're using you. It's, it, and that's why the program, the whole system of, of, of city governments and how cities are chartered in this country was set up the way that it was. So that when a, when a, when a group of people have reached a point where they can be self-sufficient as it goes as being a city, as what's required to exist as a city, that they have the right to do so. Funny thing is it happens a lot faster if you get away from big cities. When you get away from big cities that get in the way of it, that oppose it, that decide that, you know, even though you're kind of, what about, you know, because there's another side to this. Instead of incorporating, there's what's called annexing. That's where like a city's like, yeah, you guys build stuff over there and uh, that's really not part of Dallas, but uh, you don't really, you haven't chartered as a city, so you're just kind of like sitting there, so we'll just take you. We'll just annex you, right? So the cities actually do this, and it's one of the ways that they prevent all these little vibrant communities from coming up and managing their own lives and saying, we don't need your permitting people over here to get in our people's face. We can handle all of this stuff ourselves. Because when you go into rural areas with reasonable populations, you go from borough to township to city to town, uh, crossing a street. Where I grew up in Pennsylvania, you know, we, we lived in a place called Jonestown, okay? Not the crazy place where people died in, 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 in South America. Jonestown, Pennsylvania was actually where I lived, not Pondsville. And I could walk about a mile down the street to town, and that was Minersville. And they were really managed differently. And if I walked about a half a mile up the street, I was in a place called Primrose, which was its own little community, okay? And then I could get on my bike and ride about a mile over to where I went to school in Pottsville, which was a city. But then I could go up to T-Berry Hill, Seltzer City, which was also its own little place. It was in between. And then there was a place called Marlin. And all of these places had their own effective forms of government. Now, there was intergovernmental cooperation. Pottsville Police Department would patrol many of these other areas, and Minersville Police Department, etc. But where I lived in, in Jonestown, actually, was considered Cass Township, and we had one cop for the whole township, which is a pretty big place. And the only time the Minersville Police Department would be up there is if they were asked to, to assist. And it was very, very rare. So this concept of small communities running things their own way is nothing new. It's not secession. It's how cities are chartered in America Maybe both the author that used the word secession, and maybe he just wants to make a cool, compelling headline. And hell, it worked. He got his thing featured on my show, right? Because somebody saw it and sent it to me. So ah, we'll give him a pass. But maybe somebody needs to inform these people that are passing lawsuits and worried about super white majorities and all that this is just how cities get chartered in, in the country. And I think around major metro areas like Houston, you're going to see a lot more stuff like this happen because these cities are imploding. And what these people in these communities that are successful are saying is, why should we go down with your ship? Just so your ship can stay up for another couple months, right? I mean, because the ship's going to go down. We're going to get, we're, we're on a lifeboat attached to you, cutting the rope. Gee, what's that sound like Jack was talking about last week, the rest of the world in the United States? Okay, that's the thing. If you start really digging into this stuff and looking at the macro and the micro level, you'll see this is all just repetitive patterns. 
just like these cities are detathering from Atlanta, okay, you've got states that are detathering from D.C. They're not seceding, but they're putting some real separation in. And they're laying some, down some groundwork for it. Chartering state banks, you know. That's something a lot of states are not doing yet, but boy, they're starting to talk about it. And when you start talking about something at a state level, it moves a little faster than the federal level. Bringing in gold and silver, recognizes currency within state borders. States are rattling around that. They're trying to get their arms around how to do it. Nullification issues, passing resolutions that say you won't enforce unconstitutional laws in our state. We'll arrest you. If you are a federal official and you do something in our state, we'll arrest you and charge you with a federal felony or a, a state felony. I mean, it's the same thing. And then you look at Brazil, Russia, India, China, right? Everybody that can afford to distancing themselves from the USS, you know, USA Titanic, right? Staying, they got the boat, they got the rope tied to us, but they got the knife to cut it loose whenever they have to. And then you got the people clinging to us like the Eurozone. Gee, why? Because they're even bigger socialists than we are. And they've lived the socialist dream for so long, now they're terrified at what happens when it falls apart. All you're seeing with these suburbs chartering themselves as cities, not seceding, in the Atlanta area is a repeat of what's happening all around the world, all around the country. Those that are successful saying, we don't have to go down with you. And why should? What social contract freaking binds me To have my kid going to a school that will soon lose its freaking accreditation and, 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 and devalue their degree or de devalue their diploma so that I can remain in my social contract with you. You broke the contract, ass clown. You're the ones that took your city and overspent the money so you can't keep your city running anymore. You broke the contract, not these people leaving. They're creating their own contract with their own neighbors. Good for them. Let's take another one. Let's shift gears completely again and go to something totally different. Um, this question comes from Joe. And Joe says, Has anyone raised goldfish to eat? Lake Tahoe has giant ones. It seems to me that tilapia are too sensitive to cold water and they have none of the omega oils that are supposed to be good for us. Um, let's look at this in a couple different ways. Has anybody ever raised goldfish to eat? What is a goldfish? What is it really at its core? I mean, like if I would say a, uh, a rainbow trout, uh, what is it at its core? You would say, well, it's a trout. If I said a, uh, a, a, a smallmouth, what is it at its core? You'd say a bass, but the reality is a smallmouth bass is actually a sunfish. Okay, so uh, bass uh, and, and pumpkin seeds and bluegills are members of the sunfish family, and there's other fish that are members of, let's say, the perch family. And, uh, you know, we can look at something like bass. We're looking at, you know, sand bass or white bass and uh, stripers and yellow bass. Uh, these are all members of the true bass family. So what family do we, you know, kind of throw goldfish in? And I'm not a, a Latinic person, so I don't know if it's actually the family level this goes, but I think it is. Um, but a goldfish is a carp. A goldfish is a carp. And as a carp... They are the type of fish that is the most eaten in the world. No fish is eaten more throughout the entire world than the carp. 
primarily because they're the easiest to grow in just about any environment. They can handle cold water to hot water. They can handle low oxygen levels, and they feed on just about anything you can, you can come up with. So they've been used by people for food all over the place. Only in America, where we have bodies of water teeming with the diversity of fish, do we turn our nose up at carp. In, in, in China, it's a, you know, it's a delicacy. Um, the silver carp that are here in our Mississippi, Mississippi River uh, that we're going crazy with trying to prevent them from migrating any further north and they're so terrible and all, the Chinese are probably like, why don't you just net those things and eat them? In fact, there's you know restaurants popping up in America serving Chinese expatriates that um, are serving that particular fish. And, and our government's getting in the way because it's invasive. Well, duh, that's the solution, right? So that's, that's how our government fixes problems, you know. You start actually using the resource that's invasive, and then they say you, you can't, you know, whatever. Anyway, so the, the, the carp is definitely eatable. And it's nowhere near the horrible thing that we're told that it is. Now, if you have a, a, a you know, disgusting body of water that is something that the carp is the only thing that can survive in, and you eat the carp from there, you're probably going to get fish with a foul smell and a muddy texture and mushy and things like that. But if you eat carp out of good water and on a good diet, they're, they're just fine. The key is how big the body of water Goldfish and most carp species have something that they do that almost no other creature does. And it's actually led to myths that other creatures will do this. They, they grow to the size of their environment. If you get something like staying with fish, there's a, a, a tropical fish called a ballast shark. He's not really a shark, but he's a, he looks like a big shiner, like a, looks like a big great bass bait. They probably would. And uh, if you put one of those in a little 10-gallon tank, eventually he'll get to a point where, like, he's almost filling it. They'll grow 10 inches or more. They get very, very big for a tropical fish. And they won't not grow because they're in there. But put gold, put a single goldfish into a bowl, and he'll reach a size where he'll cap. And you think, well, maybe just like that goldfish, that's all he can do, right? But take him out of there and put him in a bigger tank, and he'll reach another size where he'll stop growing. And take them out of there and put them in a big, and he'll grow really, and they'll, you know, grow to their potential once they have enough room. So, Joe, you can grow goldfish or carp of just about any species for food. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, they have some bones you have to deal with that are kind of, and that's part of the issue. The way that the bone structure is, it's a little bit more work um, in some ways to use the meat, but it's really good. Um, I'm the kind of person that when you tell me something isn't good to eat, my first instinct is, how do you know? Did you ever eat it? No. Well, then I don't really take, you know, I mean, come on. Taking it to our discussion about martial arts last week, you talk about Sistema, and they go, oh, those guys can't really hit that hard. Do you ever get hit by one of them? No. Okay, then we're not going to listen to your opinion because you don't know, right? And, well, I saw some guy, and he said he does. You know. Now, did you ever go to a guy that's a, you know, that is a true practitioner that's done it for years, that knows the craft, that teaches it professionally, and get hit. No? Okay, then your opinion doesn't count. Because you don't know. That's when I, that, when I look at food, it's the same way. Uh, a carp tastes like mud. You ever eat one? No, it tastes like mud. Then how do you know? And I've eaten carp. I've eaten carp from different bo- and Some of it's great and some of it's not so great. But it's definitely edible. Just if you're going to grow them for food, 
Unlike tilapia, they need an environment large enough to encourage their growth to make it worth your while. If you put 50 goldfish into a, a, a 200-gallon tote, they're not going to reach their size potential. They're just, they're just not going to do it. And here's the interesting thing. They don't really stop growing. Their growth rate just slows incredibly, and they die before they get very big. So if you want rapid growth from a carp species, specifically goldfish, um, you want an environment large enough for them to realize their growth potential. Um, I don't know that goldfish would be my first choice of the carps, carp family, um, but I don't know what would be because, honestly, not a lot of work has been done with that. A plain old, you know, everyday common carp may be a better choice. There's a lot of bodies of water that they could be harvested from. Uh, there's generally no restrictions or limits on them. And one of the things that may be the easiest thing for people to do would be to set up a good clean water system and harvest some wild carp that are already fully grown because they're very large fish. And again, you can net them. You can, I mean, there's usually most, don't just go to check your regulations. Most states, they're considered kind of a pest, a rough fish. And take that live fish and put them into a good clean environment and give them some time to clean a system out before you eat them. That would be another thing. But carp are widely eaten and not just in China and Asia, in Europe as well. So yes, you can. But if you want to grow them, you need to give them an environment where they will grow at the right rate of speed into the size you want them to grow to. All right, so uh, this next one says, um, how can farmland that you don't actually live on become an investment option? And what is the future of organic farming if the sector can't attract constructive investment? Um, this is related to a video um, uh, with Alan Savory uh, that I put out last week doing a TED talk that talked about high rotational grazing. And he says, related video, Quegg Winsher, a new model for investing in farmland on peakprosperity.com. And I wasn't able to listen to this yet. So I'm not really going to comment on the video, but I am going to comment on the question. And I'm going to watch this video podcast or at least listen to it and uh, when I can find some time this week and, and see what my thoughts are on it. But he says, I'm wondering if the concept is sound, and if it is, could it be expanded somehow? Perhaps food riots in this country will become a survival issue for all of us if we can't retool the food industry from the ground up, literally. But uh, So here's, here's the deal. So basically the question is, how do we get money to fund and go into the sectors of organic farming and organic ranching. And the stuff with Alan Savory, and I again, I'm, I'm not commenting on the new model for investing. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I don't know yet. But the, the overall concept, if we're going to get more and more people doing these permaculture things, how do we make people realize they're viable so there's funding to get them done? And I don't remember exactly who it was by. I'm going to try to find it for you right now so I can put it in the show notes. And I was able to find it. Somebody posted this in the, uh, the comments from Friday's show. The guy's name is Greg Judy. It's about an hour and 15 minute presentation on how they're doing mob grazing in Missouri and how well it works. One of the things that I think you could easily gloss over in the beginning of his presentation is one of the very first things they did was stop trying to own all the land that they were doing this on. They started leasing the land because it was less expensive to rent the land 
and control the land than to try to own the land. And then if you can create a, a successful, profitable operation, you can pick and choose land to buy. So that it was a quicker entry, and it was less risk, and it let you do things more nimbly. So there's one of the things we can do right away. If we want to go into farming and ranching, we don't necessarily need to own land. And I think that there is a selfish instinct holding this back. This is what a person thinks. So I'm going to go into this crappy rangeland that's been crappily managed. I'm going to put my cattle on it. Maybe I'm going to do chickens followed by pigs followed by cattle. I'm going to go in there with kind of a combined Salatin, Holzer, Jeff Lawton concept. And I'm going to improve this land vastly over where it is today. And I'm not even going to own it. I'm getting screwed. You're not getting screwed. You're, you're proving it works. And you should be making a really nice profit with which to buy your own land either to do this with. Now, there's certain things we're not going to do. If I'm leasing a property, I'm not bringing an excavator in for two weeks to swale and put ponds in. But I can mob graze, and that alone can drastically change. So one of the ways that we can get into this type of thing if we want to without a huge upfront investment, not you know you don't need a half a million dollars to buy land with or a mortgage, all you need is a lease and some really marginal land that's not that difficult to lease is kind of some of the best places to do a lot of this stuff on. So I really recommend you check out Greg Judy's video. Uh, Greg Judy, I know it sounds like jo Judge Judy, but no, Greg Judy, who again is doing this in Missouri. It's a really interesting presentation, uh, and it gives you a lot of ideas. So that's that's one way. But I think the question here from Ken is more, how do we get investment money in? right? So how do we get a place where I can say, look, I want to invest. I got money. I don't want to farm. I don't want to ranch. But I believe in this, and I believe it's profitable. And I'm willing to back This is what I would do. I would look for somebody that, instead of trying to do it like at the, see, as soon as things get spun into mutual funds and stuff like that, who knows? Maybe I'm tap dancing right around with this, this podcast reveals. I'll, again, I'll watch it this week for you, Ken. But I would more along the lines of go out and find people with a proving track record of ranching and say, how much do you need to expand your operation? And I would form a partnership as an investor and say, this is the money I'm going to give you. This is the terms. It's not a bank loan. I'm risk sharing, so I want a greater return. I don't want the three or four percent that a bank would get. I want long-term interest and ownership as a partner in what we're going to do going forward. And you, you come up with a contract that's agreeable to everybody. And that means I'm probably taking very little back in the first years. And I, my, my, my investment's not as liquid as buying a stock. I can't just go, you know what, I changed my mind, I want my money back. Because you can buy $50,000 worth of Ford stock tomorrow morning, right? Okay? And you, you and, and then like, like tonight you think about it and go, yeah, I don't really think I want $50,000 worth of Ford stock. And it might even have went up a quarter or something a share, and you can go sell it for $52,000 the next day. Walk away, and if you have a Scott Trade account, you're out nine bucks for the trade. Both side eighteen dollars, right? And it could have plummeted, but in reality, it's a very exchangeable security. This kind of investment wouldn't be. This kind of investment would be. I'm coming in. I am putting my. I am becoming a partner in a ranch or a farm, and that's why I would look for successful people. 
And as a partner, then you get opportunities to be part of decision-making and say, well, I'm not just choosing a partner based on success. I want a partner who's creating successful fellow farmers and ranchers. I want to see this go everywhere. So what kind of internship program are you running? Okay, you need $25,000 to make sure that you can lease this additional block of land for two years, and you're projecting this. What could you do with your internship program if I gave you 30? And we make the 25 contingent on the long-term partnership of the productivity, but we make the five a partnership in your internship program. And then look at what Mark Shepard's doing and say, look, see how this guy's doing it? This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I want you, when you bring an intern in, I want you, the first thing to do is teach them how to fill out a Schedule F, And do an inter-farm lease. So you're leasing to them for the same. So basically there's no money exchange, but there's this, this farm-to-farm exchange going on. So that when they leave your internship program in a year or two, that they can go out and they can get a loan to buy land. Or they can get you know an ag loan to buy land. Or they can get funding to lease land. Because they have a track record as a farmer officially by filing taxes with Schedule F. And a lot of people that are out there doing this really good today, not the this part I just gave you, but the mob grazing, the permaculture, all of this stuff would, would go, shit, I didn't even really think about the fact that we could do that. Maybe we should do that. And then they would do it. And, and then, then you see, then the system becomes self-replicating. Now, how do you get it at a higher level? Um, I think one of the things that could be done is an entire, I mean, everything's about communities anymore online. That's how you get things done today. And communities are free to create. They just take work. So if you created a community that was farmers and ranchers that want financial investment with a complete story about who they are, what they've done, what their business plan is, what their track record is, where they've been, so they can be vetted out and checked into, and then a, a community of a pool of investors that say, we're looking for matchmaking, then you can take this concept a lot higher. Because a lot of people say, well, I would invest $25,000 for that long-term partnership with, a, with an experienced, skilled person. Maybe I would only invest ten with a guy that's interned for two years, but he's trying to get his foot in the door. You know, maybe, the, maybe if it was somebody that has a track record like a Joel Salatin, I got lots of money. I give that guy hundred grand if he knows what he's going to do with it and can tell me in advance. And all different levels of participation that way. So I, I don't know. We'll see what this guy's video is about. I'm just leery of when it starts to get rolled up into things like commodities and ETFs. Because then it's tradable. And if it's tradable, it's not a partnership. My belief is if you want money into this sector to do the most good, that it doesn't need to be a risk share. Like when I buy Ford, if Ford does something stupid and their stock price goes down, we both lose. That's not really a risk share because I can leave right then. I can put a stop loss on it. So I'm only going to lose two or three percent, even if everybody else loses 20 because they were too stupid to put a stop loss on it. I can buy a put or a short on the other side of the stock to ensure my investment. So if I know I'm going to hold the investment only for 90 days, I can buy a 90 day put option that ensures the downside of the investment. I can hold it till there's a dividend capture. Once I capture the dividend, then I can liquidate. I might even still have some time to liquidate my put and sell it. Maybe not for what I paid for it. Who knows? Depending on how the stock's performing, I might have captured my dividend, 
got out, so I have 30 days left on my option if I bought a longer option. And see, now, these are all technical terms. I, this is stuff I know how to do, but I don't tell you how to do because I'm not in that business. But I, the reason it's important to bring up is as soon as we take this concept and put it into a, a more of a exchangeable security where you don't know who you're investing in at all, it becomes very subject to manipulation. And the, the farmer eventually starts to lose control and it goes and moves toward the giant conglomerate that we have now in the conventional food industry. So that's kind of my midpoint, my idea. And, and Ken, I'll take a look at the uh, video podcast you sent as well. Here's a little update in the supply glut issue. It says, uh, Jack, I just left the local monthly gun show in Cincinnati. I'm happy to report the crowd was about half the size it was in recent months. There were plenty of ARs and AKs to be had. ARs were as low as $1,300. AKs as low as $850. Two two three ammo was almost a dollar per round, but there was plenty to be had. There were plenty of high-cap magazines available as well. Looks like the fear buying is tapering off. That's good to hear. And I think you're seeing it in kind of the, 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 the second-tier products first. So I think, you know, you're still having a hard time finding a brand-new Glock 19 uh, or a, a good, you know, Smith & Wesson M&P AR, but you're starting to see the, this kind of second-tier uh, guns coming back, selling for what the first-tier guns used to sell for. So this is a sign that things are starting to flush out. I still say we have a long way to go. We have almost a year before things go back to as close to normal as they're going to get after this recent uh, pinch. Now, this brings something up, how a shortage in anything can happen, even if there isn't a shortage, just because of psychology. So someone either emailed me or Facebooked me or come. I don't remember what, so I can't give credit, but... I did not know this until somebody from the audience pointed out, and I've looked it up, and it turns out that it's true. Um, I've got a website here where you can look it up on, it's called Today I Found, Today, Today I Found Out.com. Seems kind of cool. Maybe I'll follow their feed or something, uh, here. But quick fact. Johnny Carson once caused a near month-long toilet paper shortage in the U.S. in December of 1973. In his show, he said, quote, you know what's disappearing from the supermarket shelves? Toilet paper. There's an acute shortage of toilet paper in the United States, end quote. Americans promptly went out and brought up every piece of toilet paper they could find. Supermarkets tried to ration it, but to no avail. By noon the next day, pretty much all the nation's supermarkets were sold out. After several days of toilet paper shortages due to this hysteria, Carson went on the air to try to explain. It had been a joke and apologized. But because the shelves were almost always empty of toilet paper at this time, whenever some would come in, people would buy it all and hoard it. The toilet paper shortage lasted a full three weeks. Friends, it sounds funny, but there's a lesson there about prepping now, isn't there? Okay, so in other words, there was as much Charmin and everything else as there had always been, but one guy made one statement as a joke and started a tailspin that ended up creating a three-week shortage in something where there was no shortage. Much of what you're seeing in the gun industry right now is the same type of thing with a hell of a lot more horsepower behind it. But again, I keep saying, you need to look at the gun shortage, you need to look at the ammo shortage, and start asking yourself, what if it was food? What if it was medicine? What if it was energy? What if it was anything other than just guns? And how bad would it get and how fast? 
The toilet paper thing took one comedian, one of the best known in the world at the time, to be fair, but one comedian making one joke taken the wrong way to do a nationwide three-week shortage. Why? Everybody uses toilet paper in America. Not everybody uses guns and ammo in America. About 55 million of us do. Connect the dots to last week. And something really cool that's coming in a few weeks. All right. For the people that listen closely, maybe there's a connection there. But 55 million of us do own guns and ammo. Of that 55 million, there's only probably half that are really active shooters. So call it 27, 28 million of us, 26 million, somewhere in that neighborhood, right, that are really active shooters. And those 26 million people just dried up shelves. And I know this guy says it's abating, and I'm glad to hear some signs of that. But I drove past Cheaper Than Dirt here in North Texas this weekend. The parking lot was spilling out into the service road. Now, it's not a huge parking lot, but it's been like that every time I've been past there. And not just on weekends. I'm talking weekdays in the middle of the day. Um, it's not really going away. It does seem like it's starting to abate. Uh, Jim, thanks for the update on that. And for our last story today, um, what happens when... Um, Governments fail. When police departments fail, uh, when there's no one there to enforce the law, when there's no one there to, uh, to uphold order, what happens? What happens when you have to make a phone call to the police in an emergency where something's active, crime's actively happening and response time is 15 minutes or 30 minutes if they show up at all, you know? Um, what happens when it gets, when it starts to fall apart like that? The, conventional, hide in the woods, everything is going to end, survivalists would tell you, it's all hell breaks loose, and every, the dogs eat cats for breakfast, and I mean, yeah, it's just not so fast. Because um, see, this is, this is the interesting thing is, this is happening right now. This is occurring as we speak. Um, and because of that, we get to see What's happening? I'm going to play a little video for you right now. I'm going to play the audio of it for you, and I'll come back with some final thoughts before we wrap up. Now, here's how bad Oakland's crime problem has gotten. Some people aren't even bothering to call the cops anymore. Instead, they're trying to solve the problem themselves. KPIX 5's Kristen Ayers on the DIY Detectives. It's 7 o'clock, and half a dozen neighbors in East Oakland's Arcadia Park are walking the streets. Never has it seemed more necessary than now. Over the weekend, one home on this block was burglarized twice in 24 hours, once while this woman's nephew was inside. He was armed with 911 when um, those men tried to kick into his room. That was um, very frightening. Surveillance cameras captured these images of three young men casing the place moments before the home was ransacked. This, one of about 25 Arcadia Park homes, burglarized in the last two months alone. You have to walk around your house with a gun to, be, to feel safe. In a neighborhood that has started to feel like the Wild West, people have taken to posting wanted signs. This man was seen trying neighbors' doorknobs, and that's just the beginning of the do-it-yourself detective work. So you've sort of took matters into your own hands. <laughs> as scary as that sounds, yeah. <laughs> we found Ellie, who did not want to show her face, patrolling her neighborhood by car. She recently chased down a couple of robbers herself. There was a 
the armed robbery in progress, and the owner yelled, help me, and I ended up going after the, co- the, the kids. The people who live here are nothing if not gutsy, but they need help. A plan to gate their community has been stalled, and with the police force stretched painfully thin, they may follow other Oakland neighborhoods and hire private guards next. We don't have a choice. Either die or, or we hire some security ourselves. Because we can't depend on the police department. In Oakland, Kristen Ayers, KPIX 5. Okay, so what you see there is that in some places, even a place like Oakland, there are people that say, no, we're not going to have this. And right now, the response is commensurate with the problem. So right now, they don't have people that say, well, you're breaking into a house, you're going to get shot from across the street by a guy watching the place. Uh, maybe we'll hire some private security people. We're trying to put it. And if, if, if things are slowing down their ability to gate their community, what do you want to bet it's not a money issue? I mean, just 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 the gut feeling here from Jack. But what do you want to bet it's some kind of regulation crap? Oh, can't have that. You're separating. Oh, 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 oh. Right? I just know it. I know if it's... If it's not 100% that, it's at least part of the problem. Maybe it's a money problem because of the regulatory crap that they have to pay for to do it. Who knows? But you're seeing a commensurate response. There's still police. It's not like there's not any at all. But I'll tell you what happens. When they don't show up at all, these wanted posters turn into wanted dead or alive posters. The criminal elements that think in a societal collapse that they're going to become kings need to get checked with reality real quick. It ain't going to happen. There'll be places you'll get away with it. Uh, the places where the communities have largely been disarmed. But in most places, even in the places you think are disarmed, there's 55 million of us. We're not going to tolerate you tearing our neighborhoods apart. We're not going to tol- tolerate you victimizing us or our fellow members of our community. And if we get put into a position where it's just us and you, You are going to find yourself rapidly outgunned. That's my message for the scum in society. You think we're weak. We're not. You think we're unprepared. We're not unprepared. Even the average sheeple is more prepared to deal with this than I think a lot of us give them credit for. Some of them aren't. Some of them are just, God, they're just lost. But the reality is that these collapses, as you see in Oakland, and you see in other cities like Atlanta, They don't happen overnight. This fan fiction concept of everything's super, everything's dead. Like, that fast. Apart from some sort of major major cataclysmic event. You know, uh, a a, a solar flare that really knocks the grid out somewhere or something like that. Or a comet or a meteor that's bad enough to, you know, not kill everybody, but basically shut down uh, society globally. Barring that, these economic things always go into this slide. And it gives people enough time to start going, wait a minute, I see what's going on around here. And people tend to band together and fight back. A large percentage of human beings are inherently good. Whether you want to believe that or not, they are. If they weren't, no law enforcement would keep society functioning the way it does. If the average person was a complete scumbag... You could have all the rules, the laws, the regulations you want, 
and you'd still have murder rates that were ridiculous. You'd still have people killed and shot and stabbed and beaten, uh, not just daily, because it does happen, some, but everywhere all the time. And you don't. And you go to any, and I'm telling you, so many people, you guys have been sold a lie that other parts of the world are that way. I've been to quite a few places throughout the world. And I've been to much of what was called, would be called the third world. And I can tell you even in the worst of society that people band together and look out for each other. It is our instinct. It's what gives me hope that we can deal with the crap that the people in charge are creating right now for us. That giant hangover at the end of this next big party that we're all fixed to go through. It'll be worse than anything you've ever seen before. But there'll be opportunity and there'll be hope if we can stand. That's what it's going to come down to. Can you stand in the shift? The shift's happened. Are you ready for it? I hope you are because sooner or later, even if I'm not right about how and when, there'll be one. All we have to do is look at history to see that. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.